Ever since I was a kid, I've had a slight obsession with the idea of people transforming into animals. Honestly, Disney is probably to blame because I remember being very young and watching The Sword in the Stone and thinking just how cool it would be to have magic and be able to change into any animal you wanted. Then the summer of 1996 introduced the book series Animorphs to the world, and it was pretty much game over. From then on, it was an unintentional, yet in hindsight, very present focus on consuming media with this animal transformation theme. Whether it was the idea of being an animagus brought on by Harry Potter, or even my favorite Transformers series of all time, Beast Wars, I was hooked on this idea. The concept itself is, of course, nothing new. Mankind has always told stories about this sort of thing. Gods who turn into animals, men cursed with animal form, a prince trapped as a frog or a beast until true love could return him to himself. The stories are everywhere, but perhaps there's no story or myth quite as compelling as the idea of the werewolf. From Michael J. Fox to Michael Jackson, from Tolkien to Twilight, there's something about the werewolf that people are just naturally obsessed with. And I don't know that I have ever met someone quite as obsessed with the werewolf as my guest today, Robert Sisuedo. So how's it going, man? A, a lot going on for you in pandemic world, which we are yeah. still in. We're living in our own horror story now, but uh, what's going on? How you been? It's good. Good. It's uh, keeping busy. It's the, the way I found that I can survive this new world that we're in. I'm like a shark. I got to keep moving or else I'll drown. I think that's how sharks work. If it isn't, I'm just going to believe you and I'm going to tell people that's how sharks work from now on. For people who don't know, this is Rob. He's fantastic. We've been somewhere between acquaintance. I don't know. We've, we've interacted a lot in, in lots of different ways, I feel like, uh, between your work at Alamo Drafthouse and then uh, the werewolf comics that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But who are you, man? Like, what do you do? My name is Rob. I'm a film programmer, a writer, a lover of werewolves, all those things and more. And, uh, you know, I've written a uh, comic book called Werewolf that's currently being published, serialized as a webcomic on Fangoria.com. Uh, I'm also a film programmer for the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema. So how long have you been doing that with Alamo? Because I feel like I'm trying to remember the first thing I saw at Alamo that I remember seeing you at, which was at the old location that isn't there anymore. Rest in peace to that stinky, stinky movie theater. Um, but how long have you been doing stuff with Alamo? So I've been with the Alamo 11 years, uh, started in March of uh, 2011. And, uh, you know, it's it's been great. I've always loved films. And so the chance to to talk about films and to celebrate films and to, to champion films has, has been a dream come true. It's something I, I really love and I, it's something I definitely don't take for granted. I don't remember how regional Alamo Drafthouse is. I know that we have it here in Houston and Austin and then my listeners in LA have it in LA. I mean, how many cities is it in across the US? And for people who don't know, what is Alamo Drafthouse? It's the best movie yeah. theater in the country. But for people who don't know, what is it? I used to know the number of uh, theaters that were open, but several closed during the pandemic and several new ones have opened. Most recently, a location just opened up uh, this past month at Staten Island. But it's an uh, Alamo Drafthouse is a movie theater where you can order food and drinks in the theater while you watch the movie. We show uh, first run films like all your big Hollywood blockbusters like Thor, Love and Thunder and Top Gun Maverick. We also show a lot of really great indie films. We're currently showing you know, Marcel the Shell with shoes on. And we also show a lot of special events, repertory films, uh, you know, things you won't see anywhere else, whether it's like a, you know, a movie party screening of Back to the Future where everybody gets props, you can quote along with this film, or, you know, just obscure uh, films like in September we're going to be showing this movie called The Batwoman. It's a Mexican film from 1968 uh, that is like a bootleg Batman knockoff uh, in which a uh, female Batman, Batwoman, uh, fights the uh, creature from the Black Lagoon, though technically not the creature from the Black Lagoon for legal purposes, but it's a really fun, uh, you know, uh, piece of Mexican exploitation cinema that we're able to bring on and put on the big screen, you know, where it might otherwise have been forgotten. So you as like, like programming director, um, how do you go about like finding the films that, that you do? Obviously like, like the big ones, you know, cinemas or, uh, uh, production houses are, are booking theater space and, you know, normal release stuff. I'm not using the right jargon, but people understand movies show up in theaters. Um, but the things like, like the Batwoman thing that you're talking about, or, uh, I mean, different things that I've seen there, I've just, you know, great, great memories for me at Alamo. So like, are you just online looking for obscure film? Is it you going, man, I really love this. So I'm going to make sure I find a way. How do you get rights to it? Like, what's that process like? The biggest thing that I, like, I, I always try to do is just be curious. You know, there's 
so many movies out there that I can't possibly watch them all and I can't keep track of them all. But what I've learned to do is uh, trust certain folks. Like everybody has the people that they trust to recommend movies to them. And that goes for film programmers as well. You know, there's a handful of people who uh, across the country, across the world, who if I see them talking about a movie, it immediately goes on my radar. For example, there's a, a movie coming out in September called Barbarian. Totally was not on my radar. So there's Alexander Skarsgård. Uh, but I saw a film programmer from the Toronto International Film Festival call it the best horror movie he's seen since Get Out. And that immediately was like, okay, well, that is a movie I got to put on my radar and track down as soon as I can can watch it. And so, you know, that's that's really it is I, I, I pay attention to what, you know, the people who I look up to and whose tastes I admire are watching and talking about. And then I also try to try to watch as many movies as I, I can fit into my schedule. You know, uh, there, I have giant textbooks full of movie recommendations. I just try to uh, always keep an eye open for, for something new, something exciting and something that I can share with audiences. And as for the right situation, I mean, that's the fun part of the job is, is trying to track down who owns the films and, and get in touch with them and, and get permission to show them. It's it's like a solving a, a mystery, uh, you know, 30 times a month. What is it like having a job that essentially subsidizes your your film habit, your film love? It's, it seems like the dream version of like movie pass rest in peace to movie pass and the glorious month it had, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's great. But the, the thing I've learned definitely over the last 11 years is you got to keep an eye out on that life work separation, because when you have a job that you love and it's something involving something you love, like I love movies, I've loved movies most of my life. You know, I love movies before I worked for the Alamo. And, but when your job becomes intertwined with something you love, it's really easy to let your job just take over your entire life. And that's something that I was definitely guilty of pre-pandemic. COVID, in addition to just being a a terrible thing, was a huge eye-opener for myself. You know, I was furloughed at the start of the uh, pandemic. Uh, You know, I lost my job and I was faced with like, you know, what what is there? What's next? What am I going to do? And uh, my personality and my my friends and everything was so intertwined with my work that I realized, man, I got to put a wall. Even if I go back to the Alamo, which I spoiler alert, I did. I, I, I still knew that I needed to build up, you know, the rest of my life and the rest of my interest and have a very clearly defined non Alamo, non work life because, you know, I, it's just not healthy. Even if your job is incredibly fun, it's not healthy to make your job your life. Sure. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, this show started off very much in the tabletop gaming space and I kind of ran into that once I started working in tabletop gaming, it was like, it was what I did for fun. It was what I did for the show. It was what I was doing for work. And then I was just like, and then it started not being fun. And then when, um, I moved on from that job, it was like, it was, it was like a seismic shift of like the same thing you're talking about. There were no walls there. It was just, it was one enmeshed mess. And so, yeah, kind of figuring out, we talk about work-life boundaries, but like, it's more than just a, make sure you go home at five and, you know, turn off Slack. It's like, you know, have, have your life outside of your work interests and let the things that you love that intermingle with work exist separately, exist on their own and, and flourish uh, next to. So that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, hobbies, you know, who would have ever guessed they would be important, <laughs> but they are. <laughs> so speaking of which, not to like dive in too much, because I do, I have so many questions um, because I am just like fascinated by anyone who has like the knowledge and love of film that you do, because I, I love movies, but I do not have the time to consume them. And I do not have the depth of like language and like, you know, when people talk about certain styles of cinema, I'm like, I know, I know what I like. I, I like a lot of things, but I can't speak to it authoritatively. So when people do it, it just blows me away. When did that shift from being like, oh, I enjoy movies or I saw a good film that caught my eye. When did it become like a, a real love for you? I can tell you the exact year because it was a damn good year for films. 1999, you know, uh, I, I, I always enjoyed movies uh, growing up. You know, I certainly like Jurassic Park. I saw that at the exact right age for when a kid should watch a movie by dinosaurs and it blew my mind. You know, um, men in black was another big film for me growing up, but in 1999, uh, you know, you had things like uh, being John Malkovich and fight club and the matrix and Blair, Witch project all coming out. It was also around the time that, uh, you know, I got into uh, clerks and, you know, it's, I guess it's a little bit of a cliche, you know, uh, dude, uh, gets into Kevin Smith films in high school. But it's, it's a cliche for a reason. I mean, he uh, made films that really spoke to uh, like a, a certain type of uh, comic book fan that, you know, nowadays that culture is everywhere. 
but you can't swing a cat without uh, hitting some kind of comic book culture. In fact, it, it feels overwhelming at this point. But in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, we didn't have any of that stuff. So to have a movie like Clerks and to have a movie like Mallrats come out, it was like, you know, someone was finally speaking a language that, you know, I wasn't aware that other people spoke. And so all those movies, all that culture, you know, just really kind of just blew my mind in 1999. I was a freshman in high school and it just set me off into a path that I, I've never emerged from where I just became overwhelmed with this love of movies and became obsessed with trying to track down everything that had come up before I was born, before I you know became aware of cinema and keep in touch with everything that was coming out. And it was just, it was overwhelming to try to watch everything. And, uh, you know, I, I treated it almost like a, a video game and I was trying to beat and you can't beat that game. You can't watch every single movie. It's just impossible. And I, I know there are people who try. I, I, I look at Letterboxd and I see people logging like five movies a day, six movies a day. And I'm like, well, man, you, I, I admire your, your gusto, but you can't do that and keep healthy for, for too long. I get, maybe you can. I couldn't. It becomes a grind for sure. I do. I like going through periods where I'm, I'm into a certain thing. So for, for a bit, for a month or two, it was, it was like late eighties, early nineties, like action flicks, right? So it was like roadhouse and point break. And just, I went through all the Swayze movies and like, I can run through, you know, five or six movies in a week when I'm on like a real, you know, heater like that, but dude, knocking out that many in a day, that's that's a different level. I don't know if that's a level I want to go to. Here's a little secret. Uh, I am, since I have to pick movies for a job, that's my, my profession is I pick movies to get shown. I struggle to pick movies for myself to watch. Like I, I, I get overwhelmed with choices. And so what I've started doing about a couple of years ago, it was actually around the time that we started to quarantine for COVID. Uh, I created this gigantic list, you know, uh, I think it's currently up to like 17,000 movies that I want to watch. They're, they're films that have been recommended to me, films that, you know, uh, from filmmakers I, that I haven't watched yet or uh, actors that I, I haven't watched yet. And I just keep adding to this list, you know, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so when I know, OK, well, I have a couple hours, I'm going to watch a movie. I pull up this list and I pull up a random number generator and I just pick uh, a title randomly from this list. And that's why I watch. I let the algorithm choose what I'm going to watch that night, because otherwise I would just be scrolling through uh, Netflix or uh, Amazon Prime or, or my own DVD collection, uh, trying to figure out what to watch and never actually end up watching anything. Just do that thing that we all do. You spend a couple hours flipping through Netflix and you're like, oh, I guess I'm going to watch The Office. And then you uh, go to sleep. <laughs> my random film story, which is not an entertaining story at all, but it's my show, so I'm going to tell it. My enduring memory of like, I want to grow up and watch movies because I was in West Oaks Mall in the food court. It was 1996. So I was like seven or eight years old. And I saw a poster for, well, maybe, yeah, I guess 96. I saw a poster for The Phantom. And I was just like, that looks, that's a dude with a mask and he looks like a superhero and that looks amazing. And I asked my mom if I could see it and I was told, no, that's a movie for grownups. And I was like, when I'm a grownup, I'm going to see that film. And I still haven't. And like, I think about it all the time. I'm like, I should just watch this movie. Why? But now it's just kind of this like, you know, pie in the sky that maybe I'll never actually sit down and watch. But, uh, that's, I, I don't know. There's, there's no, there's no relevance to that story, but for some reason it sticks out. I can see the poster. I was seeing outside Chick-fil-A and that little, well, you know, West Oaks mall in the food yeah. court. And I was like, that is what it means to be an adult getting to go see the Phantom. You know, two things. A, the Phantom is really good, and uh, I, I really dig that film. But B, I think it's good to have movies that you save for uh, uh, some eventuality. Like you know, so I, I keep. Uh, I love the Coen Brothers. They're some of my favorite filmmakers. I keep one movie of theirs that I, I, I haven't watched yet. It's Intolerable Cruelty, and I, I don't know. I'll eventually will watch it, but I like the idea of having a movie that. You know, when eventually the Coen Brothers stop making movies for whatever reason, I will always still have a new Coen Brothers movie to watch. And you will always have the Phantom, uh, like a carrot at the end of a stick waiting for you to, to eventually get around to watching. So I think that's good. That's a really good point. I had uh, the hosts of the, the Stephen King uh, podcast, the King cast, uh, Scott and Eric on, I don't know, last year at some point. And they're huge Stephen King fans. And I'm, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. And I think it was Eric that made that same point about Stephen King books. I was like, oh, so have you you've read everything by King? He was like, no. In fact, I've kept some of like the big ones everyone loves. I'm just keeping it because someday, spoiler alert, Stephen King's going to die or stop writing. 
And so like he has those, I loved the idea that he has some of these things that are truly classic stories mm -hmm. that he's just saving. I'm like, what a great, what a great gift to your future self, right? Just <laughs> like, I'm just going to keep that in a box. Someday I will open it and I will, uh, I will embrace it then. You mentioned, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, like being furloughed and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Was that the time when werewolf began began to come into being like like in your mind or i remember you were writing a blog at that point like what was what was the origin story of werewolf the idea first came to me actually all the way back in 2007 i was doing a east coast trip with my college friend uh and we were staying in a hostel in philadelphia and you know i was really into comic books at the time so i had walked like five miles to a nearby comic book store to go pick up the new week uh, releases and I was sitting there in the lobby of the hostel reading this book and this uh, fellow traveler a guy actually from Africa and I started talking about comic books and we, we were you know just talking about the books that we were reading and that turned into like what books we would love to work on he he was an artist I was an aspiring writer and so he you know he pitched me a Green Lantern idea and I pitched him uh, an idea for a reboot for the uh, Marvel comic Werewolf by Night and I, I was like you know it's gonna be a uh, murder mystery where, you know, the hero is trying to find the identity of a werewolf that's attacking a furry convention, you know, because everybody's dressed like uh, animals. And so it's going to be hard to tell who is the werewolf and who is just a person in a suit. And he was like, yeah, I guess that's a good idea. Uh, he, he wasn't really into it, but, you know, I became obsessed with this idea. But I had never written any fiction before. You know, I had worked for a newspaper in college. And you know, right immediately after college, I went to work for the Bryan College Station Eagle. But I, I had never even, like, attempted anything, uh, you know, longer than, you know, a 500-word movie review or a column. And so I, I put that idea in my back pocket. And I, I kept writing, uh, you know, nonfiction. I dabbled a little bit in uh, some short stories. But it wasn't until... In early part of 2020, that I decided, you know, I really want to write fiction. I, you know, I, I, I show people's stories for my job at the Alamo Draft House. Uh, you know, I tell, I allow uh, filmmakers to, to sh share their stories. I want to have my own story to share. But, you know, I, I didn't know where to begin, but I was really obsessed with these books, uh, Gregory McDonald's Fletch series. You know, you may be familiar with the Chevy Chase movie that they were based on, which is, is, is a fine movie. I, I like the Chevy Chase movie, but I really, really, really love the novels. And, you know, I was like, well, I didn't have the self-confidence to tell my own story, but I thought, well, maybe I can track down the rights holders to these Fletch novels and get permission to turn them into a podcast. Uh, because if you've ever read the Fletch novels, they're almost entirely dialogue. It's just people speaking. There's very little, uh, you know, description. It's, it's all just exchanges, banter, and it's amazing dialogue. And so I thought, you know, I, I can take this dialogue, hire, hire actors to, to read it and record it and divide it up into podcast episodes and, and release them. And this would be great. It'll be popular. This would be my way to kind of get into the business. But, you know, I had no idea who to go to to get the, the rights to do this uh, illegally. Uh, but more so, what I realized is that some elements of the books had not aged very well. They were written in you know, the 70s and 80s, and they needed to be updated. And so I was going to have to write new material in Gregor McDonald's voice. And that was very daunting to me because he's my literary hero. But I, I said, OK, well, I'm going to just practice writing, you know, in the style of Gregory McDonald. And uh, I, I started writing like just short sketches, like scenes, people like talking to each other. And what I realized was I was actually writing Werewolf, the idea that I had back in 2007. Uh, it was, you know, subconsciously, I think, at first. And then consciously, I was telling the story uh, that I had dreamed up, you know, 13 years earlier. And then the pandemic happened and I lost my job and I had a ton of time on my hands. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to just write this as a novel. And that's what I did. I, I, I wrote it as like, a, you know, 42 chapters. I wrote a chapter a day and I, I posted it on a public blog and, you know, a handful of friends read it, but not a lot of other people. Uh, but it was uh, I was just so proud of myself for having finished this and having actually completed it. Uh, but I realized it wasn't done. It, it was messy. It needed another edit. But more so, I was like, you know, I can't get my friends to read this uh, in, in any large quantity. Maybe if I go back to my original idea and do it as a podcast, I can get them to listen to it. And so I started dabbling with uh, turning the novel into a podcast script. And, you know, that turned into a full on obsession. And I, I, I took the 42 chapters and turned into 12 episodes of a podcast. And I hired some actors and, and you even read, read a couple of roles, I think, uh, during this uh, process. But 
I had no skills in editing a podcast or, you know, doing recording. Uh, it sounded muffled and disjointed. It sounded like people were in different rooms, which they were. You know, I was recording this remotely across the country. And so uh, I, I reached out to a sound editor who had been recommended to me by uh, a friend. And I, I said, you know, what would it cost to you to make this sound professional? And he was like, hold on, uh, I'll, I'll call you back in an hour because I'm finishing up editing uh, Zack Snyder's new zombie movie. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to afford this guy. And it turns out I was right. He was like, you know, it'll cost like $20,000 to, to do this. And I was like, well, I can spend $20,000 on this podcast or I can spend $20,000 to do it as a comic book because comic books were always my first love. Back in my head, I was like, if I make this into a podcast, maybe somebody will pay me to turn it into a comic book. And so I just cut out the middleman, just, just make it a comic book. That, see, I, I love the creative process because I think I think sometimes, especially like as creatives or people with like creative ideas, um, we get hung up on executing like the technicalities of it, right? Like you could have hyper-focused on like, I am making a podcast and what I'm doing is a podcast. And really what you were doing was telling a story and you were trying to find the right and best way to tell the story and like, you know, find the voice that you wanted to give that. And so it, you know, went from the shift from a blog to a podcast script to now a comic book. And now that it's a comic book, it's, it, it's, is it going to be other things or is it like option for other things or like, so yeah, it's kind of ironic. Yeah. It's, it's been option for podcast rights. So it could eventually become a podcast again, but no, I, I was fortunate enough uh, to be connected with a couple of producers during this process. One of which I've known for years, a gentleman named Charles Horak out of El Paso. I, I, I've worked with him at the draft house. He hosts a film series at our theater there uh, showcasing classic cinema and, you know, I, I've known him for years and I showed him the the, the podcast script when it was still a podcast uh, and then eventually the comic book just to get his feedback on. He really, you know, liked the material, liked the idea, and he shared it with a friend of his who he had gone to school with named James Fino. And James has gone on to have this really successful career in animation. He was a uh, producer on King of the Hill. He uh, worked on the first uh, couple of seasons of Rick and Morty. He was a producer on uh, Anomalisa, the Charlie Kaufman stop-motion animated film. You know, so he's had this uh, tremendous success in the world of animation as a partner at Starburns Animation. And uh, so he and uh, Charles both optioned the, uh, the, the, the story for you know, film and television podcast. I'm not sure if anything will actually end up happening with that. I mean, it'd be great to, to see it go on and take another form in another medium. But, you know, I'm just happy that, you know, somebody responded to the material and was able, was willing to invest some money to see if it would, uh, you know, have the potential to take on a new life somewhere else in some other form. What did you learn as you like have gone through the process of, you know, self-writing, like essentially this kind of being a challenge for yourself of like, just, you know, put some shit on paper, right? Like make it happen. And, you know, kind of learn as you go. What have you learned as you've gone through that now to your comic being up uh, for the world to see? The major thing I've learned, and, you know, this was me being stubborn because people told me this before I even started the project, was I should have started with something a little bit smaller. You know, I would tell people, hey, I'm going to do a comic book. And they said, they, uh, you know, people who have done comics before would be like, oh, we'll do a one shot. Do, you know, a 20 page story or a 10 page story. Just start small. And I was like, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing. And so I ended up doing a 300-page comic book, which is, you know, huge. It was uh, a massive undertaking. Uh, and what I realized is that, you know, as somebody who has never written a comic book before, who has, you know, no strong uh, ties to the comic book world besides, you know, a handful of friends that are in the industry, no name in fiction writing, uh, it's really hard to sell a publisher on publishing your 300-page black and white comic book. Uh, you know, I, I, I had a couple of really... Um, kind uh, editors at some uh, publishers who really supported the material and, you know, uh, really explored the potential uh, to publish it in their imprints. Uh, nothing really came from that. Uh, but, uh, you know, just that kept me going, you know, to get an email from somebody who, you know, worked at uh, one of my favorite companies uh, currently publishing books and their, their email to be like, hey, this is really good. Uh, you know, I, I think this might have a home. Even if it didn't end up having a home at their publisher, it was enough to keep me working, to keep me going through that process. And before I knew it, I was done. And once you're done, once you have the finished project, you know, it's just a, uh, a matter of putting it out there, finding the method uh, to, to, to put it out there. There's there's no going back. The, the book is done. Uh, I'm going to find a way to put it out there. And eventually I did, you know, through the, the great partnership I had with Fangoria. But uh, it was just a matter of, uh, you know, pushing through that insecurity. 
What is it about werewolves? Like, like, is it, I mean, is it, was it just the right fit for this story? Is, do you have a favorite mythical monster? Is it something that's just kind of always, I, I say this, you have a, a poster of like the howling behind you as we're, yeah. as we're doing this call. Uh, so, so when, what is it about werewolves? I think werewolves were always my first, uh, love when it came to monsters. As a very young age, I watched The Monster Squad, uh, which if you've never seen it, it's a, a great movie about these uh, kids that have to fight you know, Dracula and the Wolfman and the creature and the mummy. And uh, I, I must have worn out my VHS copy of that from watching it over and over and over again. And it was always the Wolfman from that film played by uh, John Grease and uh, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite that always kind of connected with uh, me. And, you know, I, I, I would always like uh, seek out more werewolf stories, whether it was like films or uh, comic books or, or novels or TV, wherever I could find werewolves, uh, I, I would consume as much of that media as I could. And, you know, as a kid, it was always like, uh, you know, just the coolness factor of the look. You know, I, I, I like wolves. I like dogs, uh, dog man, wolf man. They, they always looked cool. But, you know, as I got older, what I really connected with was like the, uh, and this is where I, I run the risk of sounding like awfully pretentious, but like werewolves, you know, they're a metaphor for addiction, but that's what it is. Like, uh, so I, I, I know I have an addictive personality. You know, I suffer from, you know, uh, addiction to food. Uh, I have addiction to spending money that I don't have. You know, I, I, I do things impulsively without, you know, having a lot of self-control. And I've learned to, to, to develop that self-control. And it's really fucking hard. But it's something that I've, I've really uh, struggled with in my life. And I look at a werewolf and I see, okay, well, it's a man who's forced to do something he doesn't want to do because he feels an urge that he can't control. You know, it's, uh, that really, really resonates with me and my own you know, uh, background and, and, and struggles. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to, like, like you said, werewolves or like vampires or another, I think, you know, good example of that kind of like, like an addictive loss of humanity struggle that people connect with. You know, coming from my, my tabletop background, have you ever played any of the, uh, the, the werewolf tabletop game from, from White Wolf Publishing? Are you familiar with this? I'm familiar. I've never played. And it's mostly because I didn't have friends that played growing up. You know, I've, I think if I had had friends uh, that, that, that were into that, I would have definitely been into it. Like I was a kid who bought like Pokemon cards and then didn't have any friends that played Pokemon. And so I just looked at the pictures. Uh, so like I it was really hard for me to uh, to get into that stuff as, as a kid. But uh, I think my sister gifted me a Vampire the Masquerade novel when I was a kid. Uh, somehow somebody gave it to me. And it was way earlier than I should have been reading it because, you know, full of sex and all kinds of uh, adult content. You know, I was uh, in middle school reading this thing, uh, and it, but it was great. And uh, so I'm familiar with, like, the, the, the werewolf and the, and the vampire stuff that was being put out. I, I used to love looking at the pictures. And, you know, when I got onto the Internet, I would go onto the fan sites and, and look at that stuff there. Not, not having any real background with the games, but just the, uh, the, the artwork was always, uh, I think, amazing. What are stories that have like resonated with you? Do they tend to be horror stories? Do they tend to be those stories that maybe deal with addiction or with like the human struggle? Like what typically connects with you like on a story level? Good question. Like for me, it's like all about genre mashups. Like I don't tend to like strictly horror films and I don't tend to like strictly, you know, uh, sci-fi films or romance or comedy. I like things that mash up genres. So like my favorite genre is like horror comedy. Uh, but I also like, you know, the, my my favorite film, and I like I have no uh, hesitation to say this, is uh, the David Cronenberg uh, remake of The Fly. I think that is a perfect film because it's it's, it's a horror film, it's it's a comedy, it's a tragedy. Uh, you know these three things intertwine together seamlessly, and I love movies that can like hop genres effortlessly. Uh, you know uh, that can make you laugh and make you cry and, and, and frighten you within like seconds of each other. That's for me. That's like the excitement. There, there's a recent movie that came out that if you or any of your uh, audience hasn't seen it yet, they you have to go rush out to see it. But it's it's RRR. It's an Indian film uh, that's like you know three plus hours, and it's uh, this perfect example of a genre mas- mashup because you have your breathtaking action. But then it's an unabashed, like, uh, earnest bro love story between these two uh, dudes that just love each other unconditionally. Not, like, in a uh, romantic way, but just, like, you know, this is 
they're 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 there for each other. They're brothers, uh, and but it's also got musical numbers, and it's, it's just this insane mashup. And I love films that do that. That just kind of ride the uh, definitions of of what they should or should not do in their uh, story because of what genre they're in. You know, fuck genres. Just do whatever you want to do and tell an entertaining story. You mentioned Get Out earlier. I don't remember what the context was, but I think that's something that resonated with me about Get Out is that it like touched on on different areas and it was like, I don't know, going all the way back. Like I dated a girl in high school who's super into, into horror, but she was really into slasher. And so that like, for me defined what horror was as, you know, a teenager, I was like, well, this is what horror is. And I'm not into this. This is not yeah. my thing. I enjoyed, but weirdly looking back, I really enjoyed saw and it was like the psychological terror of it. Right. And it wasn't just that it was gory and over the top. It was this like, like mind game and, and kind of like thriller aspect. And once I started to kind of realize that they were like little little aspects of, of quote unquote horror that I connected with. That's when I started to like open up. That's when I started reading Stephen King and all these other things and enjoying that genre more was realizing that it wasn't, it wasn't just one element, which is kind of what I consumed or was aware of, right? Like growing up that it wasn't just this one note, even final destination, which was, you know, a movie that I enjoyed a lot because it was so ridiculous and over the top. And then I went back and rewatched it not too long ago. I was like, Oh no, this like creeping horror of like, the inevitability of like the universe or fate or whatever out to get you. And then like, Oh, and I can still get that feeling from watching other movies that don't have people getting consumed by an escalator. Right. Like, so I, I think that's a good moment when you are consuming media to like start recognizing that things aren't a singular note. It's like eating food. Like it's not just, everything's not Mac and cheese. Like you can have Mac and cheese with Gruyere and with bacon on top and like, Oh, that's a taste you like, go try that somewhere else. And now my analogies are all mixed up, but, uh, I, I don't know. I very much relate with that idea and not letting the genre define the story that you're telling. There's a handful of slasher films that I enjoy, but for the most part, that Chev genre is not one I responded to. Now, if you have a slasher film where you're like emotionally invested in the characters and they get killed in horrible ways, that sounds like incredibly traumatic and painful to watch. But that's the type of movie I, I would love to see because like, you know, I, I like I don't like just movies that like, uh, just they're like dead teenager films. Like that's, that's not something I, I, I enjoy watching. You know, I, I can appreciate them, but you know, like the final destination is a movie that I, I can appreciate it in a big, de- big way because of how creative and, uh, you know, over the top it is in the special effects of the uh, kill scenes. But like the Friday the 13th films have never really appealed to me because it's just like one note characters, uh, you know, being killed. And that's, it's fun, I guess, but it's, it's not something I respond to, but there's a great movie called uh, the final girls from about 10 years ago where it's about this, uh, you know, a uh, teenager who gets sucked into a slasher film that her uh, deceased mother was a star of in the eighties. And so she has a chance to kind of reconcile with her mother who she's, you know, been uh, traumatized by the lack of absence in her life, but it's also like a setup of slasher films it, and it's like emotional and funny. And that, that is the kind of movie that like really revs my engine. Are you a, are you a big TV watcher too? Like, or is it strictly movies? Uh, I fluctuate in and out. Like there's like, if you name like the, the biggest shows I've probably haven't seen them, even though I've been meaning to like, you know, I still need to watch Friday Night Lights. I still need to watch Battlestar Galactica or The Wire. Uh, and but you know I love like uh, like I'm currently uh, obsessing over the final season of Better Call Saul because you know that's like uh, that build up that's the kind of like storytelling that you can only get from episodic uh, television. What do you think about the difference in telling a story in you know that kind of prolonged like a twelve episode season? You have twelve hours to tell a whole story versus trying to tell a story in like a two hours two and a half hours of a film. Like like in your mind, what are what are the differences there? The struggles that you run into and communicate a story in it. People would assume that, oh, you have a whole season, that's plenty of time to tell a story. It can be its own set of difficulties to try and maintain story and development and pacing over a whole season versus, you know, a, a short film. What, what are your thoughts about that? You're right. And I, I, I think there are some shows that do it successfully and there's some that don't. And the ones that don't are the ones that kind of treat it like, oh, we're making a 12 hour movie divided into our chunks. You know, you, you, you can't, keep that momentum going, uh, for 12 hours and, and, and keep people invested in the story. You're going to get wheel spinning. You're going to get people who just emotionally, you know, uh, check out because they, they can't, you can't sustain that attention for that long, but you know, shows that like tell a story through 
shorter episodes uh, that you know can stand on their own and uh, build into a larger story. That's the kind of stuff I think that really, really works. And I, I know it's a divisive show. Uh, there's an equal amount of people who hate it that love it, but I'm a huge fan of Lost, and I think that's a great example. It's like it's a longer story that's being told. But I can remember specific episodes and specific moments. I like, but if you look at like something like the Netflix Marvel shows, like Daredevil, I can't remember like a single specific episode of one of those shows. You just think of them as longer uh, experiences because they're a big movie that's divided into forty man chunks, as opposed to like you know the X Files or Lost or you know uh, st- stuff like that or Breaking Bad, where you you have individual episodes that build to something larger. Lost is so interesting because I've come full circle on Lost because Lost was airing when I was, I guess, in like like junior high, high school. I don't, I don't really remember, but uh, I, I remember it being such an event, right? Like, like it was, it was my introduction to that. Like, you got to schedule your whole life around sitting down watching it because you don't want anyone to spoil it for you. You're going to talk about it with your your friends wherever. Um, I still think you know you talk about particular episodes. That episode, I want to say it was a second season where you first see Desmond in the hatch and it's that cold open mm-hmm. where he's like exercising the music and then you see him go and he's typing the code in like, that's yeah. still one of like the most it's seared in my brain as like one of the most like interesting scenes, let alone episodes of television. But, uh, you know, then I went through that very cynical phase, you know, in like college post-college where it was like, Oh, they didn't know what they were doing. They were just making it up and the whole thing just kind of sucked and blah, blah, blah. And now I've just like come all the way back around and been like, you know what? That was just a really like that show meant so much to me as like a consumer and like connecting with the characters and like, you know, desperately caring about like, um, Charlie and like his story, you know, talking of characters with addiction issues, like, and it resonated with me and here I am, you know, 20 years later or whatever it is. And it still, it still holds a place in my mind. I'm like, well, maybe they didn't end it the way I thought was best, but like, you got to give props to something that sticks with you that long and that you continue thinking about. It's okay to not know where you're going when you're telling a story, you know, because especially when you're telling a story that's going to last over several years and you don't know if actors are going to be available, uh, you know, over multiple seasons uh, with such a large cast. You don't know if the chemistry is going to work or if uh, you're going to have to pivot your plans. Um, You know, it's okay to change plans and to to have a loose idea of where you're going and, and kind of work towards that without knowing all the details. I think people become obsessed with like this idea that everything is preordained and preplanned inside of a creator's head. I'm sure that's true for some creators, but I, I think a lot of them just fly by the pants of their seat when telling a story, especially one that lasts, you know, over several years. Yeah, I, I, I think completely. And, and I think that like it can, and, and there are people who certainly do sit and plan out, you know, like obsessive detail. Right. And, and that's your creative process. But like, part of it. Yeah. You just kind of make shit up as you go and like whatever. And you learn things right as you are creating that then influences what you do next and what you do after that. And an actor might come in and make a choice, you know, in a role in a performance. And now you have to keep them in the role because they're so good and that impacts your story and um, letting it be an organic thing, I think, you know, does the story, you know, a really good service to it. Yeah. And uh, while writing werewolf, there was a character I introduced in the second chapter uh, that was only supposed to appear uh, very briefly. Uh, you know, Sophia Plug. She she's a, a college aged uh, cryptozoology enthusiast, and she was only supposed to appear in one scene. But I enjoyed writing her so much. I was like, no, I got to figure out how to keep her a larger part of the story. And you know, now she's one of my favorite characters to write. And uh, I, I think that was all like uh, just following your gut. You know, and, and it doesn't matter if you. I I, I had a plan. Uh, in my head when I started writing the story, but I threw that plan out the window as soon as I, you know, started uh, dipping my toe into writing with this character and I realized she needed to be a larger part of the story. I want to take a quick moment to give a very special thank you to my sponsor for today's show, Hero Forge. They've been with me since the beginning of Roll for Persuasion and I always appreciate their support. If you love tabletop games, miniatures, painting, Hero Forge are the people for you. They are the go-to platform for customized miniatures and and that is really underselling it. Go to heroforge.com, check them out. Even if you don't play games like D&D or tabletop or whatever, just go look. Because if you want to bring your imagination to life, Hero Forge is a place to do it. Their character customizer lets you mix and match, like at this point, really a limitless number of combinations of creatures, of weapons, of clothing, of gear, of animal companions, of, of bases for these miniatures to sit on, poses, magic effects. They're literally adding new content to this platform every single week. 
And as of, I, I guess for now over a year, you can actually design your miniature in color. They'll print it in color and send it right to you. So if you're kind of like me and painting isn't quite your thing, you can still get a beautiful miniature from the fantastic people at Hero Forge. When I tell you the sky's the limit, I'm really underselling it. Go check it out. Go to HeroForge.com. Thank you to them for supporting the show and make sure you support them as well. And they can help make your tabletop dreams come true. Now back to the episode. When we're recording this, the first issue has has dropped on Fangoria, right? So the second issue is this week. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so it, it's just happened. You're kind of in the midst of it. So I don't want to overwhelm you with the what's next question. But what is next? Like like what you've found, you know, some of this initial success that you wanted in doing this and, and maybe weren't even expecting. Like, is it just focusing on Werewolf? Are there more stories that you want to tell that you're thinking about already? I've already written the sequel to Werewolf. It's you know fully scripted out, and I hope to start working with the artist on illustrating it uh, in early September. But you know, my ideal situation is that like I am able to tell a new Werewolf story, you know, every you know couple of years and uh, just continue this adventure. You know, like I mentioned at the beginning, like I'm as heavily influenced by Gregor McDonald's Fletch series, which he wrote like eight books in the series. And, you know, they were released over the span of like three decades. And I would love to just follow that model and release like a new uh, werewolf uh, comic book like every couple of years and uh, do that until, you know, I know either no longer have an interest or the audience has made it abundantly clear that they no longer have an interest. But one way or the other, like, uh, you know, just keep down that journey. And in between those, you know, I, I would love to tell other stories. Like I have a, a YA uh, fantasy novel in my head that I've been playing with. I, I, I really love the Redwall books. We yeah. would have been such good friends playing by ourselves with our Pokemon cards as, as kids. <laughs> I really want to tell my version of Redwall. Like, uh, you know, I, I just love furry animals with weapons seen a common theme uh, like. <laughs> exactly so uh i have i have an idea for a book like that in my head and you know i've written an outline for a book that's influenced by you know my decade i've spent in the the film exhibition world and you know i have uh, a lot of ideas for for other stories not werewolf stories i i want to tell but you know i've just been bitten by this bug of like okay i i, I did something it's a lot easier than i thought it was going to be like a, a decade ago you know it turns out I can tell a story and I can finish that story. And so now I want to keep telling and finishing more stories and hopefully the audience responds to it. And hopefully I have an audience that will continue to, to want to uh, read or uh, experience more stories that I have to tell. Going back to Redwall, Do you follow Redwall Feastbot on Twitter? I do. Oh, it's do. my favorite. It's like my favorite Twitter account. And you're not the first person I've talked with about this. Like, it's just the most, I can be having the worst day. And then I see something about candy chestnuts and strawberry fizz ale. And I'm just like, everything's okay. The world's okay. One of these days, like I think Netflix, I don't know if they're still doing it, but I, they had greenlit like a Redwall uh, animated show. And, you know, I have this dream of like inviting some friends over and having like a Redwall feast when that show premieres and, and trying to like come up with our own approximations of some of these uh uh, you know, food items that they describe in the book so so glor- gloriously. Uh, I don't know if there's ever been an official Redwall recipe book. Somebody out there needs to, to get on that, if not. But I, I, I definitely want to experience some of those feasts. Yeah, I know someone did one. I don't remember if it was licensed or not. The licensing yeah. rights, like, for Redwall are very strange, if you've ever, like, followed that at all. Like, it's it's worth yeah, reading. Yeah. It's an interesting story. Like, it's one of those weird, like, estate things to Jake's estates. Like, go look it up. There was an animated show on PBS back in that, yeah. yeah and that was actually that was for a kid's show it was it was fairly enjoyable but i would love to see a you know a kind of new take on it because yeah that was foundational for me like and i remember discovering that book um in a half price books which is where i found all of my stories like as a kid mm-hmm. i was like oh i'm just gonna wander into this section and pull a book and i got i got a copy of redwall and i was like seven or eight and it was off to the races all fantasy for me from that book <laughs> on so um and now i have a kid and so i'm excited like like uh to, to share stories, right? Like having, having someone, it's very selfish, having someone that you get to be like, okay, now read this, now do this. Like, it's great. She's read. She, it's crazy. She's four. She's reading the Hobbit right now. Wow. Like legit. Like I just walked in the other day cause we read it to her like last year and she listens to wow. the, uh, the Andy circus reading of it and she has a copy of it. And now she's just sitting there like Bilbo, you know, had a tiny sore, whatever it is. So th- yeah. that, that whole aspect of sharing stories and seeing somebody discover them, um, it's a really special thing. And you get to do that at a movie theater all the time. 
what has been your favorite? I mean, you talked about like stuff at Alamo, you know, getting to pick like, like old or random films or do, do film parties, um, which are super fun. If, if you have an Alamo draft house in your area, go do a film party. It's my favorite thing ever. Uh, before the pandemic, I did the clue one for my birthday and it was, it was glorious. Um, but like, do you have kind of a favorite thing that you've programmed that you're really proud of or that really sticks out as a special moment? Yeah. So like when all is said done, I think the, the, the event I'm most proud of, not one maybe I should be proud of, but I just, it was such a glorious experience that I'm just so, um, I, I want this to be the thing I'm remembered for. So about like six years ago, I was reading the Houston Chronicle and I saw an article about a man who claimed he had shot the Bigfoot in San Antonio and killed Bigfoot. And he was going to be touring the corpse of Bigfoot across this country. And, uh, you know, as a big cryptozoology enthusiast, this captured my attention. And uh, I reached out to him. I, I was really easy to find his email address online. I said, hey, if you're looking for a spot in the Houston area to show Bigfoot's body, I'll volunteer the theater. And that turned into this huge event. Over two nights, you know, he uh, he came out to the theater. We did a Q and A. Uh, we showed, uh, you know, the the episodes of the Six Million Dollar Man where uh, Steve Austin fights uh, Bigfoot, and then people could file through this uh, trailer parked outside the theater and look at the corpse of Bigfoot in a glass coffin. And this thing was obviously made out of paper mache, but it was it was so impressive because he had even taken the time to sculpt like a little micro penis for Bigfoot. Uh, I don't know why he felt the need to give Bigfoot such a tiny penis, but he had, with great care and effort, you know, sculpted this little micro penis on, on this giant Sasquatch. Uh, but the whole event was just uh, tremendous. You know, it, was, it turned into this big circus with protesters and the media came out and, uh, you know, it, it was just uh, the, the most uh, fun thing I've ever been involved with. Even when it got like dicey and like people got really upset because there was a a contingent of Bigfoot enthusiasts who hated this man for uh, besmirching the, uh, you know, totally scientific pursuit of Bigfoot's existence. And so they showed up at the theater, you know, ready to to, to draw blood from him. And it turned into this uh, shouty match. And, you know, I I thought the whole theater was going to riot. And even with that, I was like, this event's amazing. And I've never been able to come close to matching that level of just pure chaos. And it's just you had to be there. (laughs) It's one of those things I, I, I have heard about. From like being in, I think in the the film club Facebook group or whatever, I've seen pictures from, and I'm just like, how did I miss that? That uh, what a, what a thing! If only you had a documentary, right? If only somebody had been like, uh, you know, there with a little mini film crew, like covering the whole thing. You know, luckily enough, uh, at the very start of the pandemic, I was you know bored, and I was going through uh, my desk, and I found a bunch of footage that I had shot from the first night, uh, which was the more fun night because the audience was more receptive. They, they, they knew what they were getting into. It was a big, like a joke. And I, I posted a lot of that footage online and, uh, I was glad I was able to save it and share it. Now I wish I had footage from the second night because that was the night where like, I really thought that the audience was going to tear the theater apart. Uh, and just trying to kill this, uh, this fraud fraudster huckster. But, uh, that was, uh, you know, that was forever lost to time. What a wild time, man. The things that, that people that people care about. So we got a little bit of, of time left here. I, I've wanted, I've been debating, honestly, in my head, because I've been looking forward to chatting with you. And I've been debating doing the stereotypical movie things of like, name your favorite, whatever, and what things should people watch. But also, I, I, I love stuff like that. I love hearing people's yeah. recommendations. So you mentioned RRR, which uh, on Netflix, um, by the way, you can go see it there. I have a I have a version that I acquired from uh, the Seven Seas that is in the the uh, the original language, um, which because people have told me that's a better experience, so I was like, cool, I'll do that. Um, so outside of that, what are what are the movies? I don't know. Give me three movies from this year. We're about how we're a little over halfway through the year. What have been just the three home run movies for you that you just you think people should go check out? I'll give you two, or I'll give you one obvious one. You know, I, this is no secret. I think this movie captured the attention and imagination of a lot of people. But if you haven't seen Everything Everywhere All at Once yet, definitely make a point to see that movie. Uh, you know, the Daniels are, are some of the uh, you know most innovative filmmakers working today. They, they, they directed Swiss Army Man. They've directed some of the coolest music videos of the last decade. And Everything Everywhere All at Once is just this uh, tremendous celebration 
of uh, you know family and commitment and missed opportunities and regret all mashed together in this you know story about the multiverse. And I felt really bad for like uh, Marvel having to release like Doctor Strange in the mouth. The, in the mountains of madness, mouth madness. I can't. What multiverse of madness? And uh, I, I, they had to release that movie like a month after everything everywhere came out, and that's just not fair for them. You know, I boohoo. I guess you know Disney. Uh, I'm sure they're crying all the way to the bank, but you know there was no way they could make a multiverse movie that stood up to everything everywhere all at once. Um, th- another movie that you know, I, I don't know what the general uh, reception of this movie was, but I just flat out loved it was a uh, Cyrano, uh, the Joe Wright adaptation. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're familiar with Roxanne starring Steve Martin or, uh, the you know, original tale, uh, Cyrano de Bergerac, it's, it's a, it's a musical update, uh, featuring, uh, you know, songs by the, uh, the national, uh, Peter Dinklage, a play Cyrano. And, um, it is just this pure unabashedly romantic film that has the aesthetic of a nineties era, Sarah McLachlan video music video. And I love Sarah McLachlan and uh, I, I love unabashedly, you know, emotional things. And so the two of those mixed together is just, I had a, a tremendous amount of uh, fun at that film. It was just, uh, it, was, it was just great. And, you know, I don't think a lot enough people watched it or, you know, maybe people did and just didn't like it, but I, I love that movie so much. And, you know, the last movie I'll recommend is one, another one that I think that a lot of people dismissed because uh, it just looked cheesy. But I'm here to tell you, it was a great, great movie. It was uh, Dog, uh, the Channing Tatum film. Uh, he, he co-directed it, and I think he may have also co-written it. He stars in it. And he, he's, it's, you know, your stereotypical uh, troubled uh, guy teams up with a troubled dog. It's like, uh, you know, Turner and Hooch. But it's uh, another, like, just emotional movie and I, I like movies that aren't afraid to get emotional like everything I, I see nowadays has like this cynical era of like detachment like everything is ironic like they, they they treat everything with like a oh no you know we're, we're we're not really feeling this this is us putting on a show you know movies like Cyrano and Dog and everything everywhere all at once they they're they're not afraid to just wear their heart on their sleeve and, 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 and tell a movie that is going to try to make you cry or laugh or, or feel something, you know, this last couple of years of, I don't know about you, but they've really worn me down. Like I, I, I feel like a, a sack of shit so much of the time because of just the world around us. And I like movies that just make me feel alive. Even if that alive is feeling sad, it still makes me feel alive. Yeah, something something genuine or real, right? Like not contrived or, or not like ironic, like you were saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why do you think that like, and maybe I'm wrong, but in my mind, there's no great, we'll bring it all the way back full circle. There's no great werewolf film in the modern day. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I think of like, I don't know, like teen wolf or like mm-hmm. when people, th- people think of Twilight if they're, you know, kind of of the millennial age. Like why has Hollywood not embrace the werewolf in the way that they should. I think uh, the special effects make it difficult. A vampire film, all you need are fangs for the most part. So you can make a really cheap, inexpensive vampire film, and people do a lot. You know, you see a ton of vampire movies being released every year. But with werewolves, you got to, you know, go all out. You got to have like the, the, the effects, the transformation scenes, because, you, you know, you're forced to compete with movies that came out, you know, uh, 40 years ago. The Howling and American Werewolf in London are both like set the the gold standard when it comes to like werewolf movies, and you're you still have movies that are just trying to compete and oftentimes failing to compete with the with these movies. And so I think you, you either have movies that just don't even try; they, they 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 really cheap out, and you know they're 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 fun for what they are, but they're they're they're, they're they know they're not in the same playing field. Or you have movies that are like, oh well, we're we're going to go all out in the special effects. Like and you have movies that end up being like the underworld films, which you know are fun in their own way, but they they they, they don't go after the uh, the emotional aspect. So I actually have a werewolf manifesto, and I'll share this with you. These are three things that every werewolf movie has to have at least two of them to be good. Uh, the werewolf movie has to have a really cool ass werewolf effect. You know, like I'm not talking about like just a wolf. Like you have a lot of werewolf movies that oh they they, they turn into a wolf. That's, no, give, give me like a, a two-legged uh, wolf man, you know, something that really looks scary and cool and that really, you know, captures your imagination. 
it has to be funny. And uh, I think it's because, like, there's something inherently silly about a person turning into a wolf that, like, Joe Dante said it best. is like, if you don't give the audience something to laugh at, they're going to laugh, find their own things to laugh at. And so your werewolf movie has to have some kind of sense of humor to it. It doesn't have to be a comedy, but there just has to be, like, an element of, of humor, at least somewhere in the film. And it has to be sad. Because I think that's the element of the, the werewolf that separates it from the other monsters. You know, a vampire is oftentimes wants to be a vampire. Uh, I don't think a mummy wants to be a mummy, but, you know, it is a mummy. You know, a zombie, you know, they, they, they're just a zombie. Uh, but, like, a, a, a werewolf is somebody who's been, like, damned, cursed uh, from their affliction. And maybe it's the, the lapsed Catholic in me, but there's something scary and sad about, like, eternal damnation that's involuntary. Like, you didn't sell your soul. You didn't, uh, you know, make a bargain with the devil. You were bit by a, a, a something, a, a wolf or a, a wolf man. And now, because of that one thing, you're going to go to hell and <laughs> you're going to kill people and you're going to be a monster. And that's, you know, that's scary. That's like, once again, it's probably the, the Catholic in me, but like, that's a, uh, for me, that's like sad and tragic. That's, that's, that's pure opera, operatic. Gotta have two of those things. It has to be funny, sad, have a cool werewolf. As long as you're hitting those two, you're going to get a good werewolf story. I will say also, there have been actually some really good werewolf movies, modern. If you've never seen Good Manners, uh, check that out. It's uh, 2000. 17 Brazilian uh, werewolf film. It's tremendous. Uh, I'm not going to say too much about it because part of the fun is the surprises, but good manners. Seek that out. My werewolf movie that I don't think is ever going to happen at this point was uh, Werewolves that Taika Waititi was supposed to do after what we do in the shadows. And maybe it'll happen someday. Um, And I hope it does just for me, but that's, that's my hope. But I, I do, I do love that idea of, like, like, right. Like the werewolf is as a character has been afflicted outside of their will, right? They have had, they've been violated and now they are the curses that they are going to violate others. And how do you struggle? You know, like you said, the vampire oftentimes wants to be immortal or the the vampire is often depicted as slowly losing humanity, right? Like, and just Mm -hmm. like, Oh, well you've lived for hundreds of years. Like you become disconnected. People are just food. But I think inherently the werewolf does present this idea of like struggle of like, well, no, when I'm when I'm human, I want to be human. And this other thing is an out of out of control part of me where I'm now inflicting my trauma on others. Um, and that's a deeply interesting story. And and you're right. I don't think that too many people uh, dig into that in, in the way that they could. So here's hoping effects reach the point of showing the werewolf well and we get those stories. <laughs> and uh, my favorite part about the original like Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman films is that his overlining uh, character trait is that he just wants to die. You know, he spends like four movies uh, wandering in and out of scenes just asking people to kill him. Uh, I mean, that's like a, a sign of a true tragic hero. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get much more tragic than that. Well, man, thanks so much. It, it's been so great talking. I, you know, I've been excited to follow this project of yours and get to kind of like peek behind the scenes a little bit and kind of see how it's been developed. And, and so it's exciting for me as, as a fan of your work to see it out in the world. And so I'm excited for you. I'm excited for other people to discover it. Um, you mentioned it at the top, but where can people find it and, and keep up with not just the project, but other work that you're doing? The book is available every Wednesday at Fangoria.com. It's werewolf. And just, I should probably clarify it's where W H E R E wolf, two words. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, like I said, available every Wednesday at Fangoria.com. And you can also find it at WerewolfComic.com, all one word. And that has, uh, you know, links to my personal Substack, uh, you know, the artist's Instagram page. It's, it's a great, like, link tree that is a uh, kind of library of all the things you could ever want to know werewolf related. Most excellent. We'll put uh, all those links in the show notes, so please be sure to check them out. Um, Rob, it's been so great. And by the way, listeners, if you're in the Houston area, come to an Alamo draft house, see a, see a cool, um, screening, drink some great beer. Uh, let me know if you're coming, we'll go to the movie together. It'll be a great time. But, uh, Rob always puts on a good show. So thanks for being here tonight, man. Thank you. And there you go. I had such a great time chatting with Robert, hearing his passion for the stories he tells and and the movies and film and television shows and books that have influenced him. Uh, Go check the comic out. It really is so fantastic. Check in the show notes. We'll have the link there. And of course, make sure that you follow this show 
on Twitter at Roll Persuasion or go to RollPersuasion.com to stay up to date with everything going on there. And if you want, come check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Roll for Persuasion. There you get access to bonus content from every episode, a little special segment with all my guests going back now, 50 plus episodes. You can check the back catalog, anything future coming out. And also uh, very soon to be dropped for each of the new episodes this season, a unedited video version. So if you want to see the actual interactions and hear some of the stuff maybe that got cut down for the podcast, you can check that out there as well. Patreon.com slash roll for persuasion. Thank you for listening and uh, see you next time.